The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. I'm here with Chris Holland. Chris, how's it going? Going great. Um, you, you know, I always think about you. It's it's You're in Arizona, and you guys do not change time at all, right? Are you the only state in the union that is keeping the same time? Uh, this is God's country, John. Um <laughs> You know, and you can have a concealed carry. You don't have to get a permit for it either. But um, I think Florida is following suit with that now too. But uh, yeah, man, we don't we don't have time zones. I mean, we have yep. a time zone, but it never changes with the seasons. But we actually have tons and tons of agriculture out here too. Like I think we're we are one of the mass producers of wheat. Hmm. And if you watch like uh, shows like Chef's Table, I think the newest season, the first episode, is a guy that revolutionized pizza. And he is in Phoenix, which my wife and my family, we just went to his pizza joint uh, two weeks ago on our spring break. Amazing pizza. But if you're in in America and you enjoy a brick oven pizza at a restaurant, chances are the person who built that restaurant has been, has been influenced by this guy. Wow. In Phoenix, because he just, just he came from Brooklyn over to Phoenix to make a new life for himself and, you know, discovered the wheat and the agriculture here. And he started utilizing all those ingredients and making amazing pizza. Like it's fantastic. Wow. All right. Well, it's getting close to lunch and I'm, I'm getting hungry, but I was just, I'm always curious. You guys, I know don't change the time, um, but that's not <laughs> why you're here. Um, we've been asking people for resources in our resource roundup. Uh, segment and we've kind of we've we've used this a few times but then we've also cut it out because of uh, some of the sensitive subject matter we've had on the the podcast lately but uh, Chris what is a resource related to ministry that's currently um, helpful to you okay so this one is one of those um, this this is one of those resources that has been just so valuable to me uh, lately so I meet with one of our elders every Wednesday and he's a retired businessman and um, a really, really close friend. He was on our on a search committee that brought me actually to this church. And we've just remained really close friends. His daughter is in our youth group. He, uh, I asked him to mentor me a while back and just help me um, to, to just run things better in our department, in our program. And so he happily obliged him. He took me through that. He's taking me currently through this book called Servant Leadership. Uh, and this is written by a guy who is a Christian who while his life was falling apart um, with his, with his wife, his kids hated him and his, the company that at the time that he worked for this big factory, they were trying to um, create a union at the factory so that they could, you know, uh, get uh, better benefits and have a better workspace. And his pastor recommended that he go to this monastery and uh, to reap wisdom from the monks that were there at the monastery. And one of the monks in particular was just like fortune 500 company business runner and got this amazing Titan of industry. And so when he goes, he starts to meet with this guy and this other group of people that are, that are just professionals in different fields. And they start to discuss, discuss 
well, what does leadership look like? And so you've got a pastor, a nurse, a military guy, and all these different types of people. And this monk just walks them through what it means to actually be uh, servant-hearted, how to how to love your employees, how to serve them and take care of them. And I mean, I, I really think, like, I've got two people on my staff full-time and then four interns that work with us in the summertime. And then different people, you know, speckled throughout and then small group leaders and, and a leadership team. There's a lot of people that I work with and that they, they work alongside me that I feel like in the past years, I've just, I've not done a good job in leadership. Um, and it's not that this elder Peter has acknowledged that or realized that. And therefore he took me through this book. I don't, I don't think maybe it is, but I'm just realizing and having that epiphany every Wednesday morning. Wow, like how you communicate and how you lead in youth ministry matters. Uh, how you treat people, how you plan, how you, you know, convey information, convey love uh, really matters. Here's the one nugget that I, I would give to any youth leader listening from that book that I've gleaned a lot from. Look for the things that your team needs and work as hard as you can to meet that need. But be careful to discern the difference in a need and a want. If it's just something that they just want, that's not a priority. That may be Christmas time, right? Answer it in Christmas time. But throughout the week, throughout the day, throughout you know the months, figure out what their needs are. How can you untie their hands to do what God's called them to do effectively? And this guy, the way he writes this is just really effective um, for my personality in particular. Uh, but to be a servant leader, to really seek to serve the people you work with. It, it, and, he, and he puts it in a Christian perspective also, but it was also like a number one bestseller business book for years and years that I'd never heard of before. Um, but that I'd say that's the number one resource for me right now as far as the Christian world. Okay. Um, say, the, say the title one more time. Servant Leaders Leadership. Okay. Um, okay. Now, a resource unrelated to ministry that's a blessing to you right now. Okay, that that is harder. I'm going to name another book, and I'm not sure that it is. I, I think it's a uh, it's a secular work. He does reference it in the beginning, like if you do work in youth ministry or college ministry, this would be helpful to you. Um, so you guys may know this guy, but uh, Tim Elmore wrote a book, Generation Z Unfiltered. Have y'all heard of that before? I think so. That sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know. Okay, it's really, really, really helpful in the sense of understanding what the the generation um, at really after me, a couple of generations after me, is experiencing and how they learn and how they think about things. Um, a lot of people, my my buddy, one of my best friends, Dennis Lewis. I don't know if you guys remember him, but uh, you know, Dennis is in Chattanooga. He's a PCA pastor, and talking to him about Generation Z, and he's like, "Oh, brother, like." Generation Z is is going to revolutionize the way the church is done in a good way. And in youth ministry, you know, our interns and my staff are all Gen Zers. And so understanding exactly how to communicate and seeing the value, the deep value in their personality and their raising and their development or the lack of development, uh, whatever the scenario is. Uh, Tim Elmore, and he has a partner author on this too, um, they really give you a statistics and a um, like a sociological perspective on that generation that's helped me to understand the people that I work with a lot better and how to communicate better. But it's also done is it's opened up 
my eyes to, to see how our current youth generation is being raised. The parents are, you know, they're lawnmower parents. They're, they want to mow the lawn in front of their kids. They don't want their kids to experience any suffering or any pain or whatever. And he's encouraging people to consider an open range parenting model uh, in which I have four small children and it's been very beneficial in my personal life. Um, but he's, he just, he names the statistics and he names the data and he names why this really matters. And he, he just suggests and encourage you to consider it deeply as you're working with people, you're working with kids, students, teachers, whatever, to deeply understand, you know, where they coming from so that you can communicate a lot more clearly to them. And it's just been really, really, really beneficial. Aside from that, Bluey is always like at the top of my <laughs> secular resources like it's just a fantastic show it's so funny really no that's a good one i mean thanks for sharing both those books they sound interesting and obviously bluey great one and people who listen to this podcast know we had an entire episode dedicated to that that oh really brett mccracken from the gospel coalition joined us um so people can go back and, and check that out um thanks a lot chris Hey, everybody. I'm here with Chris Martin and Linda Oliver. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And and I've lost count if this is your third time or something along those lines. Do, do you know? Any I think that's probably about right. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. Okay. And then we've gotten to see each other at RYM's Youth Leader Training. And you actually came down to, to my church and spoke. Uh, so we've got yeah. to interact a pretty good bit over the last, uh, yeah, I think we we've been on, yeah, this is our third podcast or so. And then we've got to hang out in person like twice in the last two years. And I'm like, I told you when we were together this past time, I was like, I don't, I'm, we got to figure out a way to do it next year. I'm going to miss my John time. So yeah, we got to figure it out. (laughs) We've got to work something out. I will say there is talk behind the scenes to, to bring you back at YLT because, Oh, that'd be fun. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you were, uh, Definitely enjoyed uh, for sure. So we want to get you back there. Um, Our our listeners know Linda. uh, She's been on too many times to count. And let me just go ahead and publicly thank the two of you because our listeners don't know this is a Thursday. We had scheduled this for Tuesday, but I showed up to my office and they were re-roofing our office. And uh, I was thinking, okay, maybe we can still make it work, but I'm not exaggerating when I say it really sounded like someone was falling through the roof um, at least three times and almost had a heart attack. So <laughs> there's there's no way we could have recorded on Tuesday, but you guys moved things around to, to get here and you're still here. So I just want to publicly, like on the record, thank the two of you for your flexibility. Um. So thanks. Uh, Look, what we're here to talk about Chris's newest book, The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. Um, That was released, I think, just a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, Chris, is that right? Beginning of March, beginning of March. Okay. Um, So people definitely need to go and and check that out. Um, We had you on to talk about your first book, Terms of Service. Um, and I, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about your newsletter, termsofservice.social. Uh, I just want to encourage our listeners, be sure to go check that out. Go ahead and sign up for that. Um, it is, I'm not just saying this because Chris is right here and he's on the podcast, but it is so useful just to try to stay on top of all the insanity as well as the good of uh, the social internet. And um, 
Chris is just very helpful with all that. And I also want to tell people to sign up for his funnies. If you do that, you'll get this on Saturday and it's a collection of tweets and memes and things that are just funny. They're, they're great. Um, so be sure to sign up for that. Um, Chris, yeah. Is there any specific way to tell people to, to find the funnies? Is that hard to find when they get on there? Uh, the funnies.substack.com is the best place to find it. Um, it's, it's linked also every week in the terms Thursday newsletter. That's like a collection of links. That's how it was actually born is I found that the most popular part of my Thursday, like, Hey, here are the four things I've been reading in the last few days that are interesting. And then I would always just share like a funny tweet or whatever. Uh, and I found that that was often the most clicked link. It wasn't any of the four insightful articles that I was sharing, but it was just the funny tweet. And so I was like, what if, what if I made just a whole newsletter of funny tweets? Maybe people would like it. And it was COVID time. I had time on my hands. And so I made it. And for the first year, the funniest was like my 30 friends and family who decided to sign up. And now it's more popular than the actual substantive newsletter, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but it makes me happy because it was just kind of a goofy thing. So, well, they are legitimately funny and actually that might serve as a good segue um, where you're talking about, you know, all this effort and good content that you're getting out there, but it's the, you know, lighthearted stuff that's getting uh, a little bit more of the attention. And that just makes me think of TikTok. Um, and one of your predictions that you, I think in January, you had, I cannot remember how many predictions you made for this year about the internet and apps and things like that. But one of your predictions was a uh, TikTok w- would be banned in 2023. And, you know, here we are in towards the end of April. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, are you nuancing your thoughts on that? Are you still confident that uh, it will be banned. Um, and I think you also said you're, you might have an article coming out soon about this. Yeah. Um, I definitely think TikTok will be banned in the US uh, within 2023. Um, I could be wrong, but I think we've only seen momentum toward that in the beginning of this year. Now you've seen like, I think Montana, the state of Montana banned it or something like that. And uh, I have an article, actually, like a tab open, one of my many tabs open on my browser right now to read this article here. There's an article in The Atlantic today about, or yesterday, and I only saw it today, about how um, basically the internet does not recognize the state of Montana uh, and that <laughs> Montana, there's there's jokes even in my youth group about like Montana doesn't exist or whatever, but, but, um, but Montana the state of Montana has banned TikTok and it's, you're never gonna, it's like, I think Utah passed a law recently. That's, that's probably going to be challenged as unconstitutional saying that kids under the age of 16 need like parental consent to sign up to social media and like love the heart of some, love the heart of something like that. Uh, Impossible to enforce. Like, I just don't see how you pull that off. Um, And so I don't think a sort of state by state approach is going to work in trying to ban something like TikTok. But I think that, sooner or later enough momentum will build and or situations will happen that indicate TikTok is a true threat to national security or has already somehow breached some national security and will be banned. Um, And yeah, I'm working on an article for that, like around basically there'll be three parts. Um, This is kind of typical for what I write. I always tend to write longer than I need to, but I always like providing some context because it's so easy. We might talk about the Mr. Beast piece here in a few minutes, but 
like I didn't set out with writing a, a piece about Mr. Beast's most recent controversy to give like a 2000 word history of YouTube, but I ended up doing that because I'm like, it, this stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like yeah. we now have significant internet history that speaks into how these things happen. And so as I'm, I just started writing earlier today, a, a piece on TikTok cause I've never really written at, about it at length. And, um, it starts out. I'll just I'll just preview it here for anybody who is a subscriber, and we'll read it eventually. Wow! Uh, hey, this is uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. Is it's it's in deal. it's in my editor right now. Uh, yeah, TikTok is currently my favorite social media platform. Next line: TikTok should immediately be banned by the United States government, <laughs> removed from every mobile app store, and effectively shut down. Both wow. of these things are true, unfortunately. I absolutely love TikTok. It's my favorite social media platform right now because it so deftly impersonates my most favorite social media platform of all time, Vine. Um, and but but it it really is, I think, a national security risk, and I think that shouldn't be taken lightly. But what I'll actually go on to say later in the piece, so I'll have a, a bit at the top, like, hey, here's the deal with TikTok. Here's why it probably will be banned and and what the threat is. But then actually, I think there's a deeper threat with TikTok that I won't go into here because it's a bit on a rabbit trail. But um, I've, I've come across a handful of, of Chinese TikTok creators who are very good at what they do and are kind of, how, how do you say, um, promoting China, if you, if you will. And I, would, I actually think that that sort of thing is as threatening to... Americans on TikTok as like our data being harvested because I'll go into the comment section. I'm going to link some of them in that article um, and I'll go into the comment sections on some of these. One guy's name is Roger 311 and he speaks in pretty broken English, but he just goes around to like Chinese cities or manufacturing plants and things like that and says like, here's what it's like. Wow. I just ate uh, three meals in a day for a total of like what would be $7. Isn't that amazing? And everybody in the comments is like, can you believe how amazing it is over there? Gosh, if only it was more like that, if, if only it was more like that over here and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I've seen so much in just these few like anecdotal situations, so much sentiment toward China kind of growing positively. Um, combine that with the fact that like China owns a few of the biggest video game companies that America, American people are using every day. Riot, the creators of League of Legends and, and like a bunch of other massive video game corporations are effectively owned by China. And so um, I think that a sort of hidden fear, a hidden threat of TikTok that a lot of folks aren't paying attention to is how Chinese culture, if you will, is sort of being injected through content on the platform that may be you know, being promoted in, in some more favorable ways. So anyway, that's what I'm going to write about. But I do think TikTok will be banned. Um, and I don't think it's like conspiratorial to think that like there are there are certain brands of phones we don't allow to be purchased in the United States because they're created by mm -hmm. China. So I, I think mm -hmm. that kind of follows in the same line. And and we should um, we should just be aware of that. And uh, but I'm again, I just said it's my favorite social media platform. <laughs> um, I'm not the kind of person who's like and you sh you shouldn't have it on your phone um, uh, because I. I have a weird point of view on this. I maybe have shared on this podcast before, but I'm less concerned about China having my data than I am even like Facebook having my data, but that's mm. kind of an off the wall thing. I'll install TikTok, but I won't install Facebook. Most people think I'm pretty crazy for that, but, um, but yeah, so the, the idea is I, I do think it will be banned and I think it'll be a matter of time, but if it's not, 
I also won't be surprised. And I, I also think something will just crop up in its place, whether that's YouTube sure. shorts or Instagram reels will take off more than they are or whatever. So, yeah. yeah, I was just about to ask, like, what do you think if it is banned? What does that do to the future of social media? Yeah, I think it's very possible that something will pop up that's totally new that we haven't heard of. Um, I think if it were, you know, let's assume TikTok gets banned this year. I think we would have probably already needed to hear of something for it to like replace TikTok. I don't think you're going to have this thing that nobody's ever heard of that the day TikTok's banned becomes the thing. I think it'll be like, oh, it's this thing that's been percolating for a while and now it's a huge deal. Um, I think YouTube Shorts has a real shot. If I were, if this was like a horse race, I would bet on YouTube Shorts before I'd bet on Instagram Reels. Um, Just because of a bunch of technical stuff I won't describe because it would, wouldn't be of interest to people listening probably, but like their creator fund is a lot better. So people are going to be more likely to get paid through YouTube and creating content on YouTube shorts rather than Instagram. Like Instagram is just not very good at paying creators, whereas YouTube is. Um, and, and I think people, a lot of natural progression for TikTokers, as I've kind of studied them since 2019, has been going from being a TikToker to being a YouTuber. And so if you want to be a professional video content creator, it would make a lot more sense for you to start creating your short form content on the platform that you may eventually want to graduate mm -hmm. to for long form content. And that synergy of having shorts and having long form um, like if I were wanting to be a video content creator, I would run to shorts before I'd run to reels as my primary short form, because then YouTube is going to like that I'm using its short form feature and its long form feature. So it's more likely to promote both of my channels, both of my uh, profiles, whereas I would be using reels to then point people to my YouTube content as a sort of like, hey, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm on Instagram Reels, but go check out my YouTube. So I think YouTube is better positioned than of all the things that currently exist. But some other thing could come up that we're not even aware of. And, you know, mm -hmm. who knows? But well, let me um, but before we leave this totally, let me be the idiot to ask, uh, how can this be banned? I mean, if TikTok is indeed banned, how can that be enforced? I mean, yeah. Right? Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah, it's, this actually is easier than you would think. Um, effectively, what happens is uh, Google and Apple remove the app from their app store. Um, those would be the, I think those are the only two app stores that really exist. They would ban the app from the app store for violating security or privacy or however they wanted to define it. They would somehow find a way that it violates their terms of service for apps. Um, and that would allow no further updates on the platform. What, what I not sure about is if it can, if such a ban can remove the app from people's phones, because for instance, this is a funny little thing. Um, long time ago, there's this huge game that blew up on iPhone or on phones in general called Flappy Bird. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the dude who created it deleted it because he couldn't handle the fame. Mm -hmm. Um, I never deleted the app from my phone because I was like, I want to have a phone with Flappy Bird on it, even if I can't play it. Uh, and so my phone still has Flappy Bird on it, um, even though it's it's unplayable. And so all that's to say is like, I don't know if Apple slash Google can basically 
turn off the app, even if you still have the icon on your phone, basically make it so it just doesn't work. I don't know what their ability is. At the very least, no more people would be allowed to download it and no updates would be allowed to be delivered to to the app on devices. And so eventually the app would become defunct, but I'm sure they have a sort of kill switch. I've just, I don't, off the top of my head, I can't think of an example where it's like, yeah, the Apple banned the app, therefore you couldn't even open it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm sure something like that exists. I can't just say, oh yeah, this one time they did this because I don't know of any of those, but I'm sure they have. Uh, and they they likely have that sort of ability to just kill kill something like that. Okay. Now that, that's interesting. I was curious about that. And I want to move us on um, to your article, but I do want to give a quick shout out to Scott Heron in Montana who listens to this just since we talked about my- You exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're important to us, Scott. Um, so, okay. You, you read an article entitled Mr. Beast, the greatest showman, I believe. And let me just encourage our, our listeners, go and read that. It is a fascinating article. Like you said, you give some history there um, because context is important and it does play into all of this. And what's interesting too, if I, if I read this correctly, it's not like you're writing this article in response to some of the recent events with LGBTQ stuff and Mr. No. You had been writing this for a while and now, okay, th- this all has happened. So maybe just give us some snippets of the context. And then I'd love to just talk a little bit about Mr. Beast. Yeah. Um, so a while back, actually, it was after the blind people video, if you will, when Mr. Beast made some waves in January uh, when he paid to have about, I think it was a thousand people be cured of their blindness. I think they had like cataracts, basically, uh, and they he had he paid for cataract surgery for all of them or it, it was paid for where the money came from. I'm assuming he paid for it, but it's sponsored money, whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um he arranged so that a thousand people can be cured of their blindness. And it was a great, it's a great video. And the video is just kind of like, Hey, it's, it's insane that, that so many blind people, I forget what the percentage was a serious percentage of blind people could, could see rightly if they just had the money to pay for this simple, like 10 minute procedure or whatever. Um, And so he endeavored, he created a video and, and filmed a bunch of people having the surgery and seeing rightly for the first time. I don't, I don't know how cataracts and stuff work. I don't think these people like couldn't see anything. I think they were basically like legally blind where they like can't really make anything out. And it's like all blurry figures and stuff like that. Um, And so he made a bunch of ways with that. And a lot of people were like, there's obvious like miraculous comparison here of like, oh, he cured people of blindness or something like that. (laughs) And let me let me say like Mr. Beast claims no messiahship here. Uh, He's not like, yes, I cured people of their blindness. There's nothing like that going on. Uh, but there was a lot of like half joking, half serious people of like, yeah, like this is kind of weird. Like this is kind of creepy um, because he's done a lot of stunts before. I mean, that's his whole shtick is like I, you know, get ten thousand dollars from a sponsor and hand it out to homeless people or whatever. Like that's always kind of been his thing. Um, or like I, I call him in the article, like part publisher's clearinghouse representative and part <laughs> Bob Barker and Price is right. Like some of what he does is like game show stuff and some of what he does is just like performative philanthropy as i called it so um yeah so this video was that and i saw a lot of people as you can imagine a lot of people on social media were very uh, passionate about how amazing it was that this rich guy would spend his time and money to cure people of blindness who couldn't afford to see 
And then some people who also said, uh, wow, he's just using these people as props in his video and kind of exploiting them. To which people then said, well, gosh, they can see now, like who cares? You know, and there's this whole back and forth. And I watched that and that, and frankly, when it was happening back in January, February, I was, I didn't know where I landed. Like it, all I knew, the first title of the article before I came up with the greatest showman analogy was Mr. Beast makes me uncomfortable. That was the first title of the article because that was just kind of how I felt. Like I was like, I don't know what I think, but I just know I'm uncomfortable because I agree that a thousand blind people seeing who couldn't see before is great. But I also feel, and knowing a little bit of Mr. Beast's history, I also feel this sort of exploitation going on because it's not like he doesn't benefit from this. Um, and I know that that's kind of been his whole thing. And so, yes, in like my, where I was kind of landing as I was thinking through this, is I was like, I really think like this is good, but it's also weird and makes me uncomfortable. Um, and so because I wasn't sure what I thought, I wasn't going to write anything. And then um, I'm friends with the blogger Tim Challies, and we email once or twice a week or a little bit less than that, something like that, a few times a month. And he, we were emailing about something else, I think. And he said, are you going to write about Mr. Beast? And I said, man, I've been thinking about it. I don't really know. I don't really know what I think. And he was like, I think you should. And he, he gave me a couple of thoughts. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. I think I should do this. That was probably early March. And so then I wrote the piece slowly between March and the last few days. And um, then the whole, his, his staff member, Chris is, is transitioning. And that became a whole other thing in the process. And I was like, I don't have anything to say about that. Like that, that does not need to be a part of what we're doing here. Um, so I briefly mentioned other controversies in the post, but, um, but yeah, so I wrote this piece on Mr. Beast. The gist is this, and I'll just very briefly summarize, and then we can get to it, get into whatever portions you think are most relevant. But um, yeah, this guy is doing performative ph philanthropy. Um, I don't think he's a terrible person. And I say this multiple times throughout the article. Like, I don't think Mr. Beast is evil. I don't think he's malicious. I don't think he's some sort of mastermind. But the first thing I thought of as I was starting to write this piece was this analogy of the greatest showman. And if you've seen the greatest showman, which is one of my favorite movies from the last however many years since it's been out. Like, it's just a blast of a movie. I love it. The music's incredible. Um, it's very sh like very shallow and like is not deep at all, in, in my opinion, other than a, maybe a little bit of what I cite here. But like um, in the movie, you have this sort of internal war, this even external war of like P.T. Barnum is finding these freaks throughout the city that he hires because they can't find respectable work or they're, you know, they're just like, they look funny or whatever. And he hires them to be freaks in his freak show, the circus. And it's kind of the story of that. And they first, these freaks revel in the fame and they, they're accepted and they, they, they're famous and they're making money and they have like a family and they love it. And then they kind of quickly realize that Barnum, the Hugh Jackman character is just kind of exploiting them. And, and like, he starts to like not want to associate with them in public. And like, they feel kind of, backstabbed by him in a sense and like they're being used and there's one line where this kind of comes to a head with the tom thumb character i think he is or whatever his name is um the little guy who makes a cow war general and he, he says i'm putting together this is pt barnum says i'm putting together a show and i need a star and he and the character says you want people to laugh at me and he says well they're laughing anyway kids so might as well get paid and 
this just hits me exactly like the Mr. B situation where he's not picking up freaks who are getting laughed at per se, but he's picking up people who are suffering and, and, you know, they may say, though they don't in the video, they may say, are you just like using me for views? His mom says this in one video that I cite in the article. And he's like, yeah, but you also get this. And it's like, well, I guess that's a fine trade. And that it just makes me think like, is it like as Christians who are consuming content on the internet, um, not saying Mr. Beast's content is like inappropriate. There's far more content on YouTube that's been very popular and very inappropriate. Just look at like the Paul brothers. But when we think of him as like a philanthropist or like a generous person, I think we need to step back a little bit and ask, are we okay with vulnerable people, whether it's homeless people in some of his past videos or in this case, blind people, are we okay with vulnerable people being used as props in YouTube videos, even if they benefit? But the but Mr. Someone like Mr. Beast is profiting to the tune of millions of dollars. Are we okay with that? How does that make us feel? And I just think that we should think about that. And I I don't like I say what I think, but but I don't think we, I just don't think we think about this stuff. And I think if we say, oh yeah, this is fine, it's totally fine, we've maybe gotten caught up in in internet entertainment culture a little bit more than if we kind of sat back for a second and thought, okay, is this good? Is this a net good? Even though these people can see now and that's great. Is it good that they had to rely on the spontaneous generosity of a famous YouTube celebrity in order to see again? And how, how should it sit with us that that's the case? So anyway. Yeah. Um, trying to form this question. Uh, I guess like one one of the big things you talk about is how like social media is like shaping and even like kind of discipling us, right? Like how, what are the ways that you're seeing YouTubers like this, like shape students and like, what are the conversations we need to have with them about this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I just watched yesterday. Um, there's these guys on YouTube, their channel, it's just called Colin and Samir, I think. Um, and they're two guys who are probably in their late twenties, early thirties who have created a really fascinating YouTube channel and YouTube presence, kind of documenting creator culture. And they focus on YouTubers a lot. Um, And recently you may know, and listeners may know that Mr. Beast has like a burger restaurant that's operated largely in what's called ghost kitchens, where like basically you could only order Mr. Beast burgers through like delivery apps, like DoorDash or things like that. And they'd be made at local restaurants who would then deliver them as like Mr. Beast's burger restaurant or whatever. This is a common thing. He's not like the only person doing this. This popped up a lot during COVID actually. Um, But they opened their first physical location at the end of last year in a New Jersey mall. Um, And they had 10,000 people show up and Mr. Beast was there. And these guys, YouTubers, Colin and Samir, who kind of document creator culture and ask really good questions about this kind of thing. They're not Christians, but just like, what is this Basically, how is YouTube culture bleeding over into broader culture? They spend a lot of time exploring that. And so during when they opened that restaurant in New Jersey in in this mall that had 10,000 people in it for the first time, probably ever, even since like the 80s, um, they kind of asked these questions similar to this, again, not from a Christian perspective. And all of these people who are in the mall are like anywhere from like six-year-olds to 26-year-olds is the 
is the people. And so this is, this is our student ministries is like people who are going after Mr. Beast. And again, I, I think a lot of his content is super interesting. His squid game video is one of the best videos I've ever seen on YouTube. Just bar none. It's amazing. What the, what should we think about regarding discipleship? I think, I think we need to recognize that Mr. Beast speaks into the lives of our students a lot more than our youth pastors do or youth leaders do, and certainly more than parents do. I'm not saying this across the board, but kind of as a rule, if you were to, if you were able to truly get like, uh, if, if your students wouldn't lie to you because they know what you want to hear and you're able to ask your students who are the most, inf- like name, name the top three influential people in your life, meaning who are the people you spend the most time with, including consuming their content? Mm-hmm. Mr. Beast and creators like him would fill that top three for the majority of your students. Because most of our students, I think it's fair to say, are spending as much time with YouTubers as they are with friends, if not more. Um, and so what we have to ask is, yeah, like if just taking this most recent example, if their understanding of generosity is this, how are we going to disciple them away from that and say, well, what, how, how is, how does Christian generosity look? Well, you're having, you're having to compete with the biggest YouTuber in the world um, who like another way, I think not only students, but all of us are being discipled by the sort of thing is like, bro, you're a youth leader in a, in a little youth group in Florida, Tennessee, wherever, why is your definition of generosity any better than this dude who has 145 million YouTube subscribers? Like he's so much more authoritative on everything than anybody in my life. I think that's probably a common thought that may not be said, but it's kind of like implicit. And so there's this obsession with like numbers and attention. And that's, that's the other thing is attention. I've written this, I think in both of the books, attention is the currency of the internet. And how much attention you get determines how rich you are, not just monetarily, though that often follows, but like influence wise and culturally and authoritatively. And so I think for a lot of our students, just the very fact that Mr. Beast is the king of YouTube makes him carry a weight that mm-hmm. um, we could never carry until maybe hopefully by the grace of God, these students mature, you know, and then like kind of start to see that. And I'm not saying that can't happen. I've seen it happen in, in the student ministry that I work in. Um, but I think like as youth leaders, as people who are caring for teenagers, we have to, the, the position I've kind of come to is like, and I don't say this in a sort of cynical or even like negative way, just so much as a like understand the reality way that we have lost, like we're, when we try to influence our students, we are the underdogs. Does that make sense? And I mm-hmm. think, again, this isn't going to be true for every student. Like there are going to be students who come out of great homes, whose parents have discipled them to a point where they're like, yeah, I know these YouTubers are just a bunch of like attention seeking people who are just trying to be goofy. And I don't think what they have to say really matters on like more important things. We're all going to have students who are, who have that level of sort of like awareness and maturity. But I think we probably understand that's not most of the students in our student ministries. Um, and so I, how I've tried to operate is like, I say this in the book, there's a chapter on authority. Um, and I think it's wise for us as church leaders, especially in youth ministry, 
to operate with the understanding that we are working on a trust deficit and on an authority deficit in the eyes of a lot of our students. Not that they like, we shouldn't take that and be defensive or be like paranoid, but just recognize that a lot of students, especially ones who aren't believers or maybe new to our student ministry are going to come in implicitly not trusting us. Um, and, and we have to earn that trust. Like I think of a lot of life on a scale of like negative three to positive three, zero being neutral. I, whenever we have a new student come in, I don't know why the student is coming into student ministry. I don't know if their parents drug them there, if they were at a church that was super unhealthy, if they just moved to the area, whatever. But I kind of, when I approach a new student, I just kind of assume I need to build trust with this student before they're going to have any substantive conversation with me. I'm not going to assume they just trust me because I'm a stranger to them. Um, I think that's just even more true because of how YouTube creator culture has is just kind of trumps every, and I'm, we're highlighting YouTube, but it's, it is the most influential platform, I think, especially mm-hmm. among students. And so just recognize, like, if you ever want, especially as we get in, we, this isn't part of the article, nor is it really a point of our conversation, but as we get into the whole Mr. Beast and uh, trans discussion, which is surely, I have not seen any indication from Mr. Beast that he's going to come this sort of like LGBT warrior, because I don't really think he wants to be that. But I think like at the same time, if you're going to expect him to just like turn his back on his friend, I, I think like we shouldn't expect that either. And and I don't like I don't think. I'm getting into risky territory here. I don't think Mr. <laughs> Beast is I, I'm not going to be like Mr. Beast is a problematic person. Christians should not let their kids watch Mr. Beast if he doesn't like shun his friend. Right. Like I think mm-hmm. if I were watching Mr. Beast, as I do from time to time. I wouldn't want to watch videos where he's like, and here's why you should all support transgenderism. But I also wouldn't want to see him be like, yeah, I had to boot him out because he was just a distract or she was just a distraction now. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to see him be a jerk to his friend either. Um, So anyway, I but but that's going to become a whole that's going to become a whole facet of this sort of conversation moving forward where Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast has been the king of triviality. Stand in this circle. The last one that leaves gets $10,000. There's nothing deep about that. There's nothing ideological. Well, there is probably something ideological about that if you think about it. But like, there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, he's not hosting debates. He's not talking to politicians. He's not, you know, doing that kind of thing. He's doing very cotton candy content. That's why he's gotten as popular as he has. Everybody can love it. There's nothing controversial. My guess is he's going to want to keep that tone because that's what makes him so successful. Hmm. However, we should have our antenna up about this kind of thing um, and recognize that all the students who are watching Mr. Beast for cotton candy content of funny pranks or not pranks, but funny contests or competitions are likely watching three other YouTubers who are promoting ideas that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. And those people, unfortunately, probably have greater authority in the eyes of our students than we do. Again, that shouldn't lead us to a point of like, belligerence or defensiveness so much as okay well i'm these youtubers sort of have home field advantage when it comes to having authority in the lives of my students how can i slowly over time also build authority with with my students without knocking down their youtubers and saying oh they're just a bunch of fools don't listen to them but learning how to take interest in the things they take interest in and and it's a long process but um, i'm rambling at this point but i think i think the it's not an easy fight and we have to recognize we're fighting time mm-hmm. and uh, it's really hard to do that. And I think it just takes compassion and face-to-face intentional investment in students over a long period of time. Yeah. 
Now that there's a lot of good thoughts there. You said rambling, but it's it's a lot of good thoughts. And it will be interesting just referencing Mr. Beast, as you said, he's kind of capitalized on triviality. And right now he has something very non-trivial that he's dealing with. And so it will be interesting to see kind of what 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 he does moving forward. Um, I know we don't have a ton of time left. And so just again, our listeners, the wolf in their pockets is Chris's newest book. Um Chris, just tell us about that title. Um, I always like to start there, but it's a very um, jarring title, I guess we could say, just it gets your attention. Um, so thoughts behind that and um, what you're trying to communicate through it. Yeah. Um, let me say before I explain the title briefly, uh, I'm not anti-social media entirely. I just said TikTok's my favorite social media account, which mm-hmm. we've probably already lost listeners at the beginning just by saying that. But um <laughs> I think social media can be good. I think it can be helpful. I think shining the light of the gospel on social media is good and important. But I also think like social media is kind of best used for triviality and goofy videos and stuff like that. And and sometimes I think the medium of social media and the social internet broadly simply can't bear the weight of really important topics. Um, and so I think we see that play out on a handful of platforms. And so I just always want to be calling our attention to even as we all are aware of the good things that we like about social media, I always want to be turning our attention to, yeah, but what are the costs? What are, what are we, um, what are the detriments of using social media? So that's, that's kind of the tone of the book and uh, just know I'm not, it's not so black and white where I'm like, Oh, delete your accounts. I still have my accounts and I use them in a disciplined sparing way as best I can. And I just um, want to go ahead and interject there with all that you write and with I mean, your books specifically, you're very balanced in there. And so, yeah, if anyone's listening to this, have have not read anything Chris has written, um, you are very clear on highlighting the good. And I mean, that's some of yeah. what you talked about, kind of the, the scale there of uncritical embrace and thoughtful yeah. engagement. So, yeah. yeah. So the, the title, very briefly, I was just writing up the proposal for this book a couple of years ago and writing a couple of the sample chapters. And I, was, I, I think in images and analogies a lot, I don't know why, I don't know where that comes from, but it's just kind of how I think, I often think of a metaphor or whatever. And I was, I knew this was going to be a book for pastors, church leaders, parents who are shepherding people. Um, and if you think about a shepherd, a shepherd is not only trying to lead sheep to not run off a cliff, but they're also kind of using their staff to whack away at wolves and protect their sheep from wolves coming in at them from the outside. And my thought was, I think a lot of shepherds don't recognize that their sheep are carrying wolves around in their pockets. Hmm. And that's literally where it came from. And so I was like, oh, well, I got to title this proposal something. I'll just call it The Wolf in Their Pockets. And uh, and that was that. And I, I pitched it to the publisher. Well, it was accepted. And in the titling process, I was told they decided to keep it, which I didn't think they would because sometimes clever titles don't work on books very well. But with a helpful, clear subtitle of 13 Ways Social Media Threatens the People You Lead, the clever image doesn't obscure what's going on. So, uh, so yeah, I'm kind of glad they kept it and makes for a nice image and a nice cover. So that's the, that's the story on that. Yeah, no, that, it's helpful. I mean, it's, it's one of those, um, not only does the title grab your attention, but then the artwork as well with the wolf, um, on the cover. Um, so Linda, I'd love for you to jump in because I know we don't have much more time. Sure. So I imagine some of the things you just said on authority come from that chapter on authority, right? Like, maybe pick a different, like what was another like favorite chapter of yours to write? Um, Rethink Authority may have been my favorite chapter to write. Mm -hmm. I think Reorder Priorities also is probably one of my favorite chapters to write just because um, 
I tend to be a pretty disciplined and regimented person in most areas of my life, especially time and calendar. Um, and I tell a story just kind of at the beginning of that chapter about when we had our daughter during COVID, I recognized that uh, if I didn't make, I've, I've since learned people call them dad hours, but like if I didn't make time for myself in the morning before I started working, that I would be a sort of like detached, frustrated dad after work because I would feel like, oh, I just have to get up, go to work, help with like make dinner, help with my daughter, and then I have to go to bed. And I never get to do anything I want to do, whether it's write or read or play video games or whatever. And I quickly realized, oh man, I have to reorder my priorities a little bit here and say, I'm going to go to bed an hour earlier, wake up an hour earlier and have a little bit of time to myself in the morning. And I recognize then more than perhaps any other time recently, just the importance of like how much time dictates my priorities. And now that I have dad time in the morning and dad hours, I, I think I'm a more attentive and, and present father after work. And so I use that story just to kind of set up like how, what we prioritize, like priorities are the coordinates of our hearts and what, what we decide matters most determines what we care about, which determines what we do. And I talk about this with students a lot. Like, sure, yeah, youth group, we talk about theology and scripture and all of that. But I, I know this from my own time as a teenager. Like, when my youth pastor would give me some like practical, like, here's how to be a mature teenager, soon to be adult, some of that stuff was super helpful. So we talk a lot at our student ministry when we talk with students, like, hey, have you been reading scripture? No, I just don't have time. You know, I'm doing school and, you know, doing athletics or going to work. I'm like, eh. You make time for what you want to have time for. Everybody has time. You just make time for what you want to have time for. And that's kind of the point of that chapter, reorder priorities. And I just explained how social media, I think, has our relationship with social media has warped our priorities such that sometimes we we value scrolling over other things or we value connection with people online rather than people offline. And so um, I think priorities really matter. And I think you could talk about how people can change their actions and change their habits all day, but if priorities aren't changed, it's not really going to matter. And so I really enjoyed writing that chapter because it was super, it was probably the easiest one for me to write just because it was super practical for me. And I've done a lot of work in that area in the last few years of my life. Yeah, that, that is helpful. And just, I mean, throughout, um, you're trying to just cultivate thoughtfulness because so often we just, as you say, uncritically embrace so much of our technology. You also have a helpful uh, chapter on friendship. Um, there's a lot that you cover in this. Uh, I know we're we're barely dipping into it and we're already needing to, to wind down, but I do want to tell people to pick up The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. This is written specifically for youth workers, for parents. We know that, that that's who makes up our, our, our listeners. And so telling people to pick this up. Um, Chris, Thank you for your time today. Thank you for all the time you put into writing this resource for the church. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's glad to be glad to be back and uh, always fun to hop on with you. Come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without pay.